In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. Might solve a mystery or rewrite history. This is the story we needed to write as we kept out of sight for no I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. On this episode of Notably Disney, I am excited to welcome back to the podcast a very frequent guest of the show who has commonly focused on conversations with me about fun Disney topics, including underrated tunes. Today, though, we spotlight his writing and work for Disney as a historian, as an author, as someone who knows more than a thing or two about the Mouse House. Uh, Jim Fanning joins me as he talks about a little bit on his background in writing for Disney, uh, including some unique projects, and we place a big spotlight on his forthcoming big title, Drawing 100 Years of Disney Wonder, which is a really cool collection of artwork of characters spanning the company's centennial history, uh, really highlighting the centennial in light of Disney 100, of course. And uh, there's some cool backstories and tidbits that he throws in. Uh, also, uh, focusing on a story that he wrote a number of years ago that has resurfaced in a new uh, comics anthology, if you will, of Disney's One Saturday Morning cartoons and Disney and uh, television animation. So, great chance to learn a little bit more about Jim Fanning, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Well, returning to Notably Disney today is uh, one of my favorite and most informed Disney scholars. We have author Jim Fanning, who has contributed his talents to numerous Disney publications and titles over the years and has multiple uh, new releases. Uh, One of the the primary focus today is going to be on drawing 100, excuse me, drawing 100 years of Disney wonder, a retrospective collection of artwork and step-by-step drawing projects featuring a curated collection of iconic Disney characters over the past 100 years. That's a long title, <laughs> but uh, but it's comprehensive. Um, we're going to talk about that and, and some of Jim's other ventures. Uh, always a pleasure to have you, Jim. Welcome back. Thank you, Brett. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. 
My pleasure. I, I thought we, before we kind of dive into um, your drawing 100 Years of Disney Wonder Project, that uh, we maybe uh, orient or reorient uh, listeners to a little bit about your journey in writing for Disney because it's encompassed a variety of spaces. Could you maybe share a little bit of context on that? On my own uh, career as opposed to, the, to, to this particular book? Yeah, to kind of preface what 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 makes you a, a very qualified uh, Disney expert and and writer on the subject. Well, that's a that's a great question. Um, I've just always been very lucky, I think, in, in, over these past decades. <laughs> Speaking of Disney One Hundred, uh, <laughs> just to have written so much about the history of the Walt Disney Company and related. Um, uh associations <laughs> like the muppets um and i've just always been very lucky to have been when we were doing laser discs way back when um i was doing liner notes for laser discs when we were doing vhs i was writing the back of the boxes when i was when we were doing dvds i was doing bonus features so I've been very fortunate, I think, to be called upon to help tell these great stories and remind people that 100 years on, there was an actual person named Walt Disney, and he had a particular incredible vision and brought together a group of artists and other people, and every single one of them has an amazing story. So again and again, I'm both grateful and astonished grateful to have the opportunities and astonished at the stories. They are, they are really incredible. So um, the more I delve into all of these wonderful things, whether it be Oswald, you know, all the way up to the forthcoming wish <laughs> that I, I get, I get an opportunity to write and talk about these things. So I think it's just, it's just that I've always been fascinated by it. And, I, you know, a lot of it has rubbed off. And I love, as, as your audience knows from previous appearances <laughs> on, your, on your wonderful show, uh, I just love to talk about it. And somebody just presses the on button or the, or the play button, then I'm off and running until somebody presses stop. <laughs> So it's well, it's always great to talk to somebody like you who has such a great a great knowledge of and appreciation for the whole thing too. It's fast. Thank you. It's fascinating to learn that you had a role with the the descriptions on the VHS uh, tapes and and the liner notes of of Laserdisc. Um, you know, I think sometimes people who are not necessarily writers or where that's not a primary component of their work always realize how difficult it is to be concise and to capture an idea in, you know, a hundred words or, or something very brief. And I think that's a perfect illustration of how do you catalog the, you know, 90 minutes worth of content from the movie on the back of a VHS to, to sell it to parents or other consumers of why this is worth uh, purchasing or in a more less marketing way, you know, writing uh, a a book or or different features where you're chronicling the history of something that that shows uh, a wealth of versatility and in, in writing. Oh well, thank you. Well, that brings to mind the whole thing about. I mean, it's a profession, uh, and 
most of what I've done has been either directly for the Walt Disney Company or Disney licensees, so therefore approved by them and reviewed by them to the nth degree. So that, you know, when I stop and think about that, that's an astonishing responsibility. And not, not every Disney historian, quote unquote, gets to do that. Um, certainly in today's world, anybody can be a Disney historian and many people call themselves that. But they, you know, they're, they're writing maybe on their own or, or self-publishing or what have you. And all of that, I think that's great. You know, the opportunities for anybody just to, you know, say what they're thinking and, you know, or fa you know fan appreciation and all that kind of thing. And you, re you read some wonderful things. But it also makes me think about professionalism and these official jobs that come with restrictions and one of the restrictions often is a word count. And I know uh, one thing I did for D23 was I wrote um, uh, a series of articles about Walt Disney himself on uh, D23.com. And they had a word count. They, they said we needed, we needed to be no more than these words. And I forget what it was. But it wasn't, if you read any of those articles, they're not very long. So they were just supposed to be little, little quick tidbits. Um, other things I've written for d23.com, by the way, they never said anything about a word count. So some of them are quite lengthy. But this particular series, they only wanted a few paragraphs. And I know I posted one on, I, yeah, on Facebook, and I was immediately accused of clickbait. And why didn't I say more? And you barely scratched the surface. And I was like, well, <laughs> I didn't say anything but uh they gave me a word count and that's what i had to do i might i might have said more i could have but sorry that's i had a boss and the boss said what to do and i did it <laughs> so people i don't think people realize sometimes that's what's involved so the back of the which i just mentioned in passing really the back of the vhs things uh, the back of the box. Um, I remember when The Lion King came out and The Lion King was like the top selling VHS tape of all time and probably still is. So my joke was they could have put a wrapper, a plain white wrapper on it and, and just said, you know, Walt Disney Pictures and The Lion King. That's all they needed. And <laughs> I have no illusions that what I said sold, you know, a million more <laughs> it would have sold no matter what but i also remember talking because i'm originally from new york and live in california uh, but i was talking to a friend back in new york and he would say well what are you working on and i said aha now there's something that i've written that you will actually have in your house <laughs> because the, the the odds were you know just about anybody had that so that was fun that was fun to be able to say well you may not have one of my books and you may not have one of these things that are published overseas in another, you know, another language other than English, but I bet you have one of these VHSs. So, if you want to read something I wrote, you can read one of those. <laughs> That's so funny. You know, it makes me think, Jim, about and and I, I'm sure you can speak to this um, much more eloquently. But if you think about it, there's a lot of content in the world of entertainment, and Disney is no exception. Where 
there's written content that we don't always know the author. We don't know. We don't always know who to attribute to, right? So whether it be, I don't know, uh, like a, a plaque in a park. That I mean, generally, there's uh, it's connected to a speech. But the, the point being, a piece of writing that might be in a specific context, but there's no author attached. Uh, I think that's a, a really interesting illustration of that. Nobody would ever know that unless you know you said something like that. Yeah, I, I find it interesting too. I think especially in the world of Disney. Uh, because um, it's gone through different stages at different points where, you know, they shied away from giving credit. I mean, obviously nobody's going to give credit on something like copywriting for a, for a video, you know, that's not, it, it just, it's just not part of the world, but even, even things like books, you know, storybooks and adaptations and things they they have gone back and forth and you know part of the training quote unquote that disney people get is that there's only one name that matters and it's not yours <laughs> so i know that like take golden books through most of the history of golden books the authors and artists have been given credit they are today and they were for the first couple of decades of their existence, but they went through a, a time where somebody decided, oh, it's not important. So there's like this segment of golden book history where we don't really know who wrote, wrote some of those things or, or did the art. So it's, it's kind of weird. Yeah. The inconsistencies with attribution. I also <laughs> imagine too, as you're, um, as you were talking a few minutes ago, how, I imagine one of your responsibilities and something that you're really intentional about is making sure that the content that you're relaying is factual and that it's really rooted in um, information that you can be able to, you know, find and and authenticate. How how do you make sense of that by virtue of the different projects that you've uh, handled over the years, especially in, in concert with this massive rise of self-publishing and unofficial historians? Well, one, one thing about that is it, it remind in this era of, of the proliferation of Disney historians, <laughs> so, some of some of the self-proclaimed have don't have a sense of accuracy or where where one can turn for accurate verification. But one thing about historians and, and both uh, Dave Smith, the, the famous Walt Disney archivist, and also his assistant archivist for many, many years, Robert Tiemann, both of them told me independently that historians don't carry everything around in their head. They know where to look it up. And that's because, first of all, it's impossible, you, especially with something like Disney. You cannot retain all that information in your head. So, you know, speaking for myself, speaking for myself, I mean, there I know a, a, a certain amount and maybe more than most people, but you know, you'd, you'd be, you know, shooting yourself in the foot if you tried to tried to remember every single thing. And um, the, the, you know, Dave Smith in particular was like was like that. He he said, you know, uh, you know, people ask me questions. He said, I, he said, I'll look that up. <laughs> and you know, who knew more than he did off the top of his head? So that that's that's one 
thing about it, but um, that just makes me think that you have to look things up and you have to verify. So when I'm writing, um, I will try to do what I can off the top of my head, but I'll put notes in like, you know, make sure you look this up or make sure you verify it. And you have to know where to go for the, for the accurate verification. And then connecting with what I said earlier about every, almost everything I do is official. The Disney archives does read and verify everything. So they, I mean, literally every single thing, whether published by Disney itself or licensees. So that's a good safety net for me. Obviously I try to get it right before they see it, <laughs> but um, knowing that they're checking is 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 uh, a good thing so you you especially in the world of the internet i mean you you know better than most right that there's so much misinformation out there and uh, you have to be careful just quote unquote googling things um I, you know you can use that but you have to see where it's coming from and so forth so yeah uh, you know, date, dates, for example, the package features are notoriously difficult for me. I never remember which one came out when in that period. So I always have to look up. <laughs> and I kind of do trust Google for that. You know, I'll just quickly say, make my music. Oh, yeah. 46 or 48 or whatever year it was. I don't know. I know. Um, I know the years for every Disney animated feature, but those package films, that's what always messes me up. Just those handful. <laughs> that's where I lose it. Yeah. I, you know exactly what I mean. So. <laughs> so uh, I guess transitioning to, um, you know, a, a big release right, right around now, the drawing 100 years of Disney wonder project. How did, how did that idea originate? Um, and, and ultimately, how did you come into the fold? Well, as with, for, for speaking for my own involvement, as with 99% of the things that I do, they approached me. I had no idea this was happening. I, I didn't know. I've never worked with Walter Foster, which is the publisher before. Um, not, not the individual, but the name of the company, Walter Foster. Um, and they contacted me and said, would you interest in writing the history of the Disney company from 1923 to 2023 and in a limited number of pages and a limited number of words. So I was like, of course I would. Who wouldn't? So and uh, so it was as simple as that. And we we talked of course and I really love the people that were involved. They're 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 great. Um, and I was looking at it earlier today because I, I just recently got my author copies and it's beautifully, beautifully done. But Walter Foster, for those that don't know, is they are the publisher, the longtime publisher of Learn to Draw books. And probably, uh, probably there are probably just about everybody's been exposed to Learn to Draw books from Walter Foster, even if they don't know that. And they have been publishing since, you know, I think early in the 20th century. And they have put out some fantastic, beautifully done books about 
how to draw horses and how to draw landscapes and all all the and the paint them. So all all dedicated to the artists and helping people just get you know just have fun with art even if it's not a profession. And I think everybody should be. I think everybody should be you know using art to express themselves. So they are very famous among in, in animation circles for having several wonderful things based on comics and, and cartoon characters. And two of the most famous uh, centering on animated characters were, were written and designed and drawn by Preston Blair. And he was the brother of Lee Blair, who was married to Mary Blair. And most people know Mary Blair, but um, it is Lee, right? I think it's Lee. Lee was um, a longtime animator. I think he's the one that got Mary involved in animation and Preston. And they both worked for Disney at different points. So Preston Blair is acclaimed as one of the greatest, you know, designers from the golden age. So he, he wrote th these books and I believe they're still being published today. Uh, you know, how to draw classic cartoon characters and the principles of animation and how to design a character for animation and all that. And then I think, hmm, was it the 80s? I think it was the 80s where Walter Foster Publishing became a Disney licensee. So they've been doing these learn to draw books with Disney characters for many, many years now. So it, I think it's to their credit that the publisher mostly of paperback manual type books with instructions how to draw characters. They decided they would do for the Disney 100 a hardcover history book, including learning to draw because it's told the whole series, the whole the whole history of Disney is told through the characters in this book. It's focused on them. And that's the way we do it. And the live action, for example, the live action and the parks are not really, for the most part, brought in at all. So I thought, I thought they were, it's to their great credit, they decided to do this. And of course, they had so many things to draw on. Uh, no pun intended. They had so many, you know, they, they've done just about every Disney character there is at this point old and new so they were they were able to to you know tap into all that so i think well, i think it's a great great project yeah well and i and i grew, i grew up on those learn to draw books like i had for so many of the major releases of like i had pocahontas and hunchback and then they i know they had those focused around all the D disney duck characters and and various iterations so i mean and and really, it's I mean, what a what an effective mechanism to enable young people, especially, to uh, feel like that they have a connection to the images that they're seeing on screen. So, um, I'm glad to hear that this is a not only a culmination of that, but also, uh, as you said, kind of uh, chronicling the history of Disney by virtue of the characters that they've produced. What was your biggest challenge in assembling a book that offers dozens of designs? You have hundred years worth of characters 
that you can use as illustration, but you're also telling the history of Disney and highlighting some of the animators and key moments. It's uh, my understanding is there's a lot packed in here. Yeah, I would, I would say so. And it, it was both a fun assignment and sort of daunting how to talk about all this history and how, when there is so much history, how to focus in on, on what. So luckily there was an introduction to each decade. So to me, that was sort of the primary thing was setting that up because after that, you know, in the 1950s, of course, you're going to do Cinderella, you know, of course you're going to do Peter Pan. So in a way there was a natural narrowing down uh, when you got into the nitty gritty of the, of the actual films and the actual characters. And um, I, they, they, had, they had decided what characters they were going to do as well. So um, they're like, for example, Lady and the Tramp, there are so many characters in that show. Well, which ones are they going to do? And of course they're going to do Lady and Tramp, <laughs> but who besides that? And I, I forget now, I, I think that might even be it for that film. So I didn't have to sit around and wonder, well, should I do Jock or should I do Trusty? You know, that much was decided. And they, they had to do it that way, of course, because they had to have the art, the learn to draw art part of the book set. So then they were just looking for anecdotes and fun facts and just some fascinating stuff. So I tried... I tried to do that and I tried to draw on my interviews with, with like say Mark Davis and um, Frank and Ollie and, 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 and that, but also pulling on historical documents with people that I never talked to personally, including Walt Disney himself. So throughout we have, we have a sprinkling of quotes that uh, are incorporated, but just trying to talk about the, the, the characters and hopefully that's conveying what Disney is, you know. Uh, so there, and there's obviously so much more to animation than that. There's the settings, the back, you know, the backgrounds, the creation, you know, the creation of the films with the concept art and all that and music and songs, but we don't really get into that with this book. So, the book itself was already kind of focused and that really helped. So it sounds like, it, it sounds like there was maybe some degree of creative freedom in terms of uh, blurbs that you would write about that accompany some of the characters. And like you said, drawing on different interviews, is, is that a fair estimation? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. They, they really left it to me to what I was going to say about a given character that we knew was going to be in the book. They had decided that, but then it was, it was kind of up to me to say what, what I wanted. And I gave, in some cases, I gave them more material than they could use. Um, and they, you know, they narrowed it down uh, because I, you know, I thought, well, let them respond let the editors to respond to this and what they like best. And then they could choose it in again, the word count, because there was only so much room on each page 
you know, how, how many words can we fit in? So in some cases, I, I gave them the word count. In other cases, I said, well, there's like du double or more than double here that you can use, but um, you can choose your favorites. So, so how, do you know, how do you approach an assignment like that, right? Where there is a lot of flexibility in the type of content that you draw from, because I imagine there would be a desire to some degree to um, pull in a variety of different types of sources at times, um, interviews or archival records or, you know, how, how, do you, how do you make sense of that? Well, that's an excellent question. When you have a, a limited space um, and there, you know, we, we knew that it had to fit, you know, like, um, like the, I mean, I, let me, let me just look real quick to see if to give you a specific example, just so I'm not just making something up. <laughs> but for example, there's a spread on Cinderella and the drawing is Cinderella herself. So on the one page, there was, there was room for a certain number of words that had to be about Cinderella. On the other page, we knew we were doing like a sidebar on her, her friends, the mice, so Shock and Gus. So, and again, with a word count. So I had to do something basic for people who don't know who the characters are, but at the same time wanted to provide something fun and maybe something not as well known. So you're constantly like, well, who's the audience? And, and this was designed for adults. It's not for children, although of course it's Disney, so it's child friendly, but we were trying to do something that had some meat to it. And, you know, not just extremely simple things for, for, for children, which can be done. And I have done that, but I emphasize to your listeners that this is not intended in other words, if you're, I'm sure most of your audiences are adults, it's for you, it's for you. And I think, I think you will enjoy it and get something out of it. But at any rate, um, always, the, always the thing is, how can I say something basic without being too basic? And what can I bring in that's, you know, historical about the creation? And then hopefully some tidbit that is not as well known. And anything I've ever written, I have tried to include every single time things that I've not included before or, or something that I didn't know myself. So, because, you know, in an egotistical way, I, I thought, well, if I hadn't heard that fun little anecdote before, you know, maybe most people haven't. <laughs> so I always try to include something new. I still, I, I started out that way and I still do that to this day. It's not always possible, but, or, or at least something that's not as well, it's not as oft repeated as some of these things are. So it makes me wonder in that spirit, what is one, what is an example of a more obscure character or piece of information that you uncovered during this process? Well, that's an excellent question that I'm probably not going to be able to answer off the top of my head. Um, yeah, not, nothing, nothing comes to mind. Um, or at the very least, are, is there a character 
that is perhaps more overlooked. So maybe not a Cinderella, but um, a, a character that most people probably don't give as much attention uh, toward that, that you helped tell a little bit more about their story or background. Great questions. <laughs> I'm just making it difficult for you, Jim. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh no, you live for that. I know you do. <laughs> I, it, it's kind of it's kind of sadistic. I do. I like asking unique questions, but but again, I imagine that is the challenge in writing a book like this, where you're not just focusing on the all star characters, but you're yeah. maybe focusing on those like maybe from the package films or or those from uh, some forgotten eras in Disney history, right? Yeah, I, I, nothing's unfortunately nothing's coming to me with your wonderful question. Um, after saying, well, I tried to include the the more obscure, and then I I can't remember. <laughs> and of course, the thing is, I wrote this some time ago, and it was so vast that when I was done, I was just like, I don't even remember what I wrote. What did I say about the twenties when I got to the two thousands? You know, I didn't even remember. But um, sure. I guess, I guess in this case, um, I'm just looking through it now. For example, with Lilo and Stitch, I talked about the painted backgrounds. And that's not exactly new. You know, I think a lot of Disney fans might know about that, that they went back to the watercolor look of Dumbo, uh, for example, and Bambi. But that's still somewhat obscure. And I don't think that's the first thing that people think about when they think about Lilo and Stitch. Um, and then like, for example, with Be for Beauty and the Beast, um, and specifically the character of the Beast, I included this quote from Glenn Keane, which I'm sure I, I have interviewed Glenn, but I'm sure this was not from one of my interviews. I've, I think it was probably from a publicity interview, but I thought this was this was a neat quote. In most of our films, the hero is some outside obstacle that he's fighting against, whether it's a witch or a dragon or a madman. In this film, although Gaston becomes a definite threat, the beast's real foe is himself. And the real struggle is an internal one with his own nature. This made the character much more interesting to work with. So I was really happy to include that quote because... I think it's so insightful and it's something that makes that film so different from others. I mean, you know, had, had there ever been a Disney character like the beast before? So, and, and here's the, here's the animator who designed him and he did, you know, there definitely are interviews where he talks about the design of the beast, but here he's talking about the character on the inside and that's really neat because, of course, that's the, the best animators must do that if they must perform the character. Uh, who are they on the inside, and how do you show that through through movement? How do you achieve that personality? That goes to the heart of Dis what Disney is. So that was a neat quote that you don't read every day. I think. Yeah, I was going to say, because I, I, yeah, I've listened to many of those interviews with Glenn Keane about, you know, the different animal inspired influences in terms of different parts of the beast's figure and, and face. But I, I love that. Um, I, I feel, I, I imagine there are some parallels to with Quasimodo, right? Another character who's the 
that the battle is is within as much as it is um you know defying Frollo and and all of that yeah exactly mm, that's a good good um example I, I want to ask so Andres Deja um you know responsible for characters like Jafar Scar some of these great Disney villains that you just want to eat up like so he provides the the foreword and some other content in the book is that right yes throughout the book Andreas Deja um provides um insights and background um on on different Disney characters not just the ones that he himself animated which is pretty neat that we have that, but I'm sure that the reason they asked Andreas and it was an inspiration is that he is very much a historian and he's very much a historian who got to not only talk to, but to get to know extremely well, many of these amazing creative people that created what we call Disney. So he knew, he knew Milt, he knew Mark, he knew Milt Kahn. He knew Mark Davis and, and being an animator himself, he knew what questions to ask him, <laughs> what, you know, special information that he was interested in, just because he was trying to create characters himself. You know, I, I, um, I haven't even read his foreword yet uh, because I was not, I was not, privy to what he was writing. I don't know if he was on a different schedule or or what, but I that's another thing actually that made the book a little challenging because I didn't know what he was going to be saying. So if I said something about Aurora from Sleeping Beauty, was he going to be saying the same thing? Well, I just told myself you can't worry about that. And then again the editors would know. So that would be them saying, oh well Andreas already said that, so Jim will focus on this, or you know, they could ask me if they wanted to, to do something different. But having said as uh, having said all that, um, he may talk about this in his foreword, but people that know Andreas's history, his personal history, know that when he was a kid, he wrote to Eric Larson. <laughs> uh and said, you know, oh my gosh, Disney animation is the best, and I want to be a Disney animator. And Eric very wrote him a very kind letter back and said, you know, oh yes, we, you know, you're definitely very talented. Keep on learning and drawing, and you know, hopefully someday you can come here and, and work. But you know, make sure you go to art school and all that. So from a very early age, Andreas, that was his drive. That was his ambition, which, which was realized. So he already knew, in a sense, Eric Larson from when he was a kid. <laughs> so it's fascinating to read something so, by somebody so insightful. But beyond even insight, it's his personal encounters and relationships with these amazing, you know, I wanted to say characters, these amazing artists who they they created Disney. That's, you know, they worked with Walt every day and for decades. So, so having him him uh, chime in every so often throughout the book is an amazing, amazing thing. And of course, my I guess my point is he brings something to it. That I couldn't. I mean, I knew so, I knew some of these folks as well, 
uh, you know, uh, I would say especially Mark Davis and Frank Canale. I, I was so privileged to know them, but he was actually, could I say they were friends? They were certainly friendly to me and very good to me, but, you know, I never socialized with them or anything like that, whereas he definitely did. And obviously, as I said, he, he's an animator too. So he, I, I envy that. I, I, you know, I wish I had his knowledge in these interviews so I could ask the right questions. <laughs> so he, he brings a real, uh, uh, an incredible different dimension to the book than my, what I, what I, brought to the book so it's really really neat yeah what a, yeah that's a really nice complimentary element to the book and you know a disney legend at that um which is uh quite well deserved too um glad he's able to to contribute in this manner i want to shift god go ahead, go ahead Jim. no i'm i, I was just screaming <laughs> <laughs> Well, good deal. Well, let's uh, shift to another title. Um, I understand that, uh, you know, and, and listeners may know this, that you've written a number of articles and, and stories and, and pieces over the years. And one of them was a, a comic related to the new adventures of Winnie the Pooh uh, series uh, called Follow the Tigger. And it's featured in a comics anthology uh, Disney has released dedicated to shows affiliated with uh, Disney television animation, the one Saturday mornings. Could you talk about you know, what it was like for you to see this old piece resurfaced for newer audiences, broader readership, really? Well, it's, it's a thrill. It's an absolute thrill. And the, the main reason for that is that I, I wrote quite extensively for the, for the studio comic book program which some of your viewers, uh, I should say listeners, would have heard about. But for several decades, the Disney studio produced comic book stories, both writing and art, to be published anywhere in the world. Uh, and I suppose, uh, I don't know, I suppose they could have been published in the United States, but that was not their point. So it was this whole series of comic book stories, and I mean thousands, thousands of stories. And then it was this, it's this pool, which still exists. And, you know, like Topolino in Italy, the famous, the famous comic magazine there, they could, they could, you know, purchase the rights from Disney to publish it. So many, many, many of these stories have been published all over the world. And as I'm implying, it's everywhere except in the United States. <laughs> so as I've said many, many times, probably on, on your podcast, Brett, that my favorite kind of writing is comic book writing. I would do that all the time if I could. I wish I got to do it more. I wish people would ask me to do more of it. But through a through a good portion of my career, I was writing quite a number of comic book stories. And the great frustration was is they were never published in the United States. And unless they were published in England, which sometimes they were, they were not published in English. So the Winnie the Pooh stories, of which I wrote many, many, and 
Winnie the Pooh's my favorite. I love Winnie the Pooh. I love everything about it. I love the characters and everything about it. None of them have been published in the United States until now. <laughs> so this little three-page story has finally seen the light of day in the United States. And I am thrilled that David Gerstein, the, the editor and the great comic book authority, uh, was able to include that story. Were all my Winnie the Pooh stories three pages? No. A lot of them were much, much longer than that. <laughs> but um, it's, it's a fun little story. So hopefully people will buy the book and then hopefully there will be more down the line. Uh, and I'm very, very proud of those Winnie the Pooh stories. Very, very proud of them. And I wrote them in association with the great Tom Goldberg, who worked at first at Western Publishing and then directly at Disney for many, many years. And one of the finest people I ever, I, I ever knew, one of the Disney greats, although his name is not known, and um, a fantastic person and a great gentleman and very much in the classic Disney mode or, or Disney mold where he was just the kind of person that Walt Disney seemed to attract. You know, look at, look at what a great gentleman Mark Davis was, what a great human being. Same with Frank and Ollie, same with Eric Larson, just anybody, the Sherman brothers, just anybody you can name with what worked with Walt Disney. He just seemed to attract that kind of person. Not only vast talent, you know, vast talents and creativity and art artistry, but just fantastic human beings. So anyhow, I could go on and on about Tom, and I've talked about him on, on uh, other interviews. But um, a, a great, a great joy to work with him, and all those Winnie the Pooh stories that I wrote under his editorship. <laughs> And the other and the other stories I wrote as well. So it's a great it's a great joy that finally people in the United States can read at least one of my stories and hopefully more to come. Do you sense that there's a market demand for the development of of new stories in this in the same space and spirit? Well, yes. Um, in the United States, I don't know, um, but thousands and thousands of comic book stories are produced all the time for Disney because in other countries, comic books are read by adults. It is not seen as a child thing. And again, they are child friendly, of course. And some of them are designed for a very young audience. But the, you know, in some countries, they publish multiple Disney comic books every week. Whereas, unfortunately, in the United States, the comic book industry struggles to stay alive, you know, with monthly uh, publications. And the Disney comics in particular, meaning, uh, you know, strict, I'm obviously not talking about Marvel, but I'm talking about, uh, or Marvel so much, <laughs> but I'm talking about, you know, Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck classic characters and the famous comic book characters. They're known as comic book characters around the world, probably even more than animated characters. 
So probably as we speak, there's probably hundreds of comic book stories being written. But will they ever see the light of day in the United States? I don't know. But certainly the sales of a, of a book like this would help. Wow, that's really fascinating. I wonder um, I wonder if maybe that's a book to be a uh, chronicle at some point, um, or at least in a, with a particular lens. Disney and, and comics and different spaces, or perhaps I'm not privy if there there is scholarship on that front, but yeah, and again, most of it's been done overseas. I mean, David Gerstein here, uh, certainly we've been very very lucky. They're doing the Disney Masters series right now, which is hardcover and it's from Fantagraphics as as this as this book is. So I, I I'm. In, in one sense, it is, it is a golden time in the United States on that level because we are seeing classic comic book stories reprinted from stories originally done in the United States, but also from around the world. So I guess it's not as bleak as I'm making it out to be, but I guess I'm thinking more of like actual comic books. Sure, like sure. Those comic, the floppies as they call them, <laughs> the comic magazines. But right now, there's a whole series of hardcovers that your audience should definitely look into. And the entire got the entire run of Godfredson's Mickey Mouse newspaper strip was run was run, you know, in hardcover. Uh, the entire run, as long as we did continuities into the fifties. So that's a remarkable uh, publishing achievement. And then Carl Barks. Donald Duck stories have been published and republished in their entirety in hardcover. So we have some of that, luckily. But when I look at the magazines and comic books from other countries, it's astonishing. That's just part of their daily fare. Yeah, it's it's a, a window into the wider world and some it's really fascinating to think about. So I appreciate the perspective there. As we wrap up, Jim, um, are there other projects or endeavors in development that you're uh, able to talk about or things that you want to promote? Well, there, I, I'd say as always, there are things coming up that, you know, we're not supposed to talk about until it's announced. So I would say that there are some exciting things coming. But the big, the big thing I like to remind people about is my YouTube channel. And anybody that enjoys what I do, um, I, you know, it's obviously me <laughs> in, the, in the videos talking about things I love and trying to show the audience some interesting things um, in terms of collectibles, um, at least, you know, at, at, and if not, physical objects than, you know, information. So I try to do a variety. And I, I you know, I, I always like myself following somebody and saying, you know, the thing I like about this guy is you never know what he's going to do next. So I try to make my own channel like that. I try to envision the ideal audience and them going when they check in to see what's new on my YouTube channel. Like, what's he going to do now? What's he going to talk about? What's he going to show? So I try to build in that element of 
variety and surprise. And it's mostly Disney. It's not entirely Disney. And another thing that I've realized in talking to people is that people, it's just hard to get across the fact to people that there's a new video every Tuesday. I talk to people that actively watch my channel and seek it out, and they don't know that. <laughs> and partially it's YouTube's fault because I think a big thing that was a mistake on their part. You used to be able to go to a YouTube channel and see, oh, look at what this person's posted. And now they've, they've taken shorts and made them a separate thing on the page. So I think, I think when it's a short, and sometimes it is on a Tuesday, a big part of the audience doesn't see that. You can and should subscribe because you're, you're supposed to be notified when there's a new video. But A, a lot of people don't do that. And B, I know people that say they subscribed and they said it doesn't work anymore. I'm never, I'm never notified, even though I'm subscribed. So go figure. So that's definitely on YouTube's end. So anyhow, I hope people will tune in every Tuesday for a new video. And there's if you if you just started watching my YouTube channel, there's I've been doing it for well over three years now, and there's there's tons of videos on some tons of different subjects. So I hope uh, I hope everyone will tune in. <laughs> Perhaps most importantly, Jim, the name of your YouTube channel is <laughs> dot dot dot. <laughs> well, thank you for mentioning that. Uh, or, or setting that up so well. It's called Tolgywood TV. And the hashtag is Tolgywood TV Tuesday to remind us that every Tuesday there's a new video on Tolgywood TV. But if you can't remember Tolgywood TV, just search, just search Jim Fanning Disney on YouTube and it will come up. If you just search Jim Fanning, the baseball player will come up. We all like to think there's only there's the one and only Jim Fanning, but it's not true. There are the Jim Fannings. <laughs> Maybe you just need to do a crossover of Disney uh, Disney content and base and baseball, like yes. focus on the rookie, Casey at the bat, like just find those opportunities. So. Yeah, see, I need I need your wonderful ideas, Brett. Just for spring training, spring training season, have a baseball themed episode. I mean, so I set that up for you. So sure did. Okay. Just focus on on this. I, I, it's funny. I was on Disney Plus the other day, and I was reminded of how many great Disney sports films there are, and how uh, they're not really producing as much of that. I guess some originals for Disney Plus, but um, I, I miss those uh, theatrically at least. So, oh, that's so cool. Yeah, that's something I would not really only like peripherally aware of. I would never add that up. What a great, what a great insight. Are you a big sports fan? I'm actually not, which is the ironic thing. <laughs> I'm not at all. It's a, for me, it's a great window into see. I'm I'm always focused on like I find the storytelling of like you know players' backgrounds and you know how they come into the um, into that industry, if you will, uh, fascinating. So, but ironically, no, I, I I'm general. I I I don't generally chant it that I'm not a big sports person, but I feel like the Disney sports films are a good. Uh, window into a kind of a snapshot of, of the sport, but also the, some of the key players. So. Well, I, yeah, I agree. And it goes back to that idea that everybody has a great story. And 
sports is an arena where, you know, there could be these wonderful stories of triumph. Uh, so that's very cool. But we'll, we'll rejoice the day that they put um, Moochie of Pop Warner football on Disney+. Plus. Then we will be happy with our sports stories. I'll take some of the goofy sports shorts uh, <laughs> as as a good uh, uh, a good uh, like meeting halfway. So. Yep. Yeah, and the restorations, and I know you focused on Cinderella um, in a recent episode um, of your channel, and so it's nice to see that there's uh, know, further investment in, in terms of bringing some of these um, classics uh, in a, a new way, a bit fresher. So yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, we may have to stop com complaining one of these days that Disney Plus doesn't have enough classic content because they are adding more, thankfully. Yeah, slowly but surely. So oh, long as so yeah. long as other stuff isn't cut out, which is a whole other conversation. But yes, the whole, um, the whole streaming thing, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Jim, always a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for uh, sharing a bit about drawing 100 years of Disney wonder. And uh, I imagine people will want to check that out and your your follow the Tigger story uh, as well. I'll put the hyperlinks in the, in the show notes. Thanks for coming on again. Thank you for having me, Brad. I, I really enjoyed it as always. As always, my thanks go out to Jim Fanning for joining me on Notably Disney. I will encourage you to pick up a copy of Drawing 100 Years of Disney Wonder, which is going to be a cool and unique addition to your book library. I know I'm, I, I'm excited to pick up a copy. It debuts uh, on September 26th. Again, the publisher is Walter Foster Publishing. And in the interim, definitely check out Jim's YouTube channel. That's Tolgiewood TV, new content every Tuesday. Thanks again, Jim. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports. And be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.